Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today we are throwing it back to 2018, talking to Ryan Flynn. Uh, as if the Trans Am bike race, which is across the U.S., 4,000 miles, wasn't enough, Ryan is attempting to complete the Triple Crown of Ultra Distance Cycling. And that is the Trans Am, the Indian Pacific Wheel Race, and the Transcontinental Race. I don't think this is like the actual, quote, Triple Crown of Distance Cycling, but it's Ryan's. And it's pretty cool. Really entertaining episode. This is before I was the host, back when Kurt was a host. And uh, yeah, sorry for getting the episode up one day late because uh, I was off Wednesday and I kind of got my whole timeline through thrown off and uh, ended up uploading one day late. Sorry about that. But we'll be back on track on Monday with a, with a brand new episode. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Hey friends, thank you for listening again today to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today is about ultra-distance cycling. We have Ryan Flynn with us, and Ryan is attempting this year something that has never before been done. It's the Triple Crown of Ultra-Cycling. That is the Indian Pacific Wheel Race, the Trans-American Bike Race, and the Transcontinental Race in Europe. These are huge races. We're talking about things like 4,000-mile-long races and Ryan is trying to race all three of these in one year to set a new record. Ryan, welcome to the program. Hello. Uh, thanks. It's, uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, you bet. This is going to be so much fun. I told you before I hit record here, Ryan, that I don't know a whole lot about this. I used to do some distance cycling, but when I say distance yeah. cycling, I mean like 70 or 80 miles a day, not the 150 for, for two weeks. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And so yeah, this yeah, is all kind of kind of be new to me. So I'm excited to learn more about this. Um, first of all, who's Ryan Flynn? Where did you grow up? Uh, a 32-year-old boy from South Africa uh, that now lives in Melbourne in Australia. Um, yeah, grew up in, well, all sorts of places in Southern Africa. Um, parents are Zimbabwean and uh yeah we kind of they they moved to South Africa where I was born and I grew up in Swaziland which is a little kingdom inside South Africa and yeah been all been all over um the place traveling around um my dad's a farmer so yeah had had a great childhood kind of growing up um in the cape in the western cape um in Swaziland kind of all, all around Durban and uh, White River and Joburg and Pretoria and on the border between Botswana and South Africa and, yeah, Mozambique. Wow. So, so you are the, the South African guy. You've seen it all down there. Yeah, yeah, I guess uh, I, I guess so. We're all, um, well, we as in Curve, uh, the the business I have with some friends, we're all just cycling, cycling nuts, I guess, or draw upon very different skill sets. So it, yeah, it's a nice, a nice team, but I guess, yeah, I'm the, uh, I guess I'm the South African. We have an Italian, um, in, in Adam and, uh, Jesse, um, is kind of, well, he's Adelaidean with German heritage. And then Steve is Thai. He's also grew up in in Adelaide and now lives in Melbourne so we're all kind of an interesting mix of riding disciplines and uh backgrounds yeah, yeah a lot of varied backgrounds so are you all in Melbourne now yeah we are we all kind of um work and live pretty close together and so that's curve cycling that we're talking about yeah curve curve cycling is kind of an Australian cycling brand um we focus mainly on um handmade titanium and steel bikes of all descriptions mainly bikes that we uh we we make to pursue an adventure so similar adventures that we're, we're really chatting about today so great well i want to come back to that a little bit later in the show and get more details especially because what i see in the stores so much these days are bikes that they're not made for the the distance and for the the beating that you have to put on yeah. a bike you know what i mean for what you're doing and uh, it sounds like maybe curve cycling 
has sorted some of that out? Yeah, I guess um, that's perhaps our niche. Uh, we've kind of carved out a little um, uh, area of our own inside the cycling kind of family. Um, so a, a lot of our adventures have, have been about community and fun, but also having a product that's um, it's really rugged and can can last a very long time and that's probably why we chose to build with uh, titanium and and with steel. Hmm. I have interviewed a lot of people that have done extended rides on bikes, not about these massive races like you're doing, but extended oh, yeah. rides and it seems like every time I ask they they don't say, "Oh, I'm on a carbon or I, you know, I've got this aluminum frame." It's almost always, "Oh, no, chromoly steel." You know, I'm on a steel bike. Yeah. Yeah, steel's great in, in, in the fact that you can kind of beat it up and um, it'll it'll stand the test of time, really. But also, if you're in very remote locations, anyone can really work with steel, whereas titanium's perhaps a, a, a more kind of uh, um, delicate metal that you, you need a lot of specific kind of experience and tooling to work with whereas steel you can kind of just cut a bit off weld a bit on off you go <laughs> keep on going through kind of you know zambia or parts of angola and everyone's worked on steel before whereas titanium is kind of more of a magical metal that uh, requires a bit more of uh, love and attention right but yeah you're right i guess the guys you've interviewed in the past they're they're, they're probably wanting something that uh, is pretty easy to to, to fix if something does go wrong, which invariably it does. <laughs> right, right. Well, let's get back to this triple crown attempt. And then I want to talk, uh, spend the most time on the Trans-American bike race because that's the one that you yeah. just finished. And so it'd be fun to get something that's just hot off the press. But um, triple crown. Now, give us a little bit more detail. I rattled off what the three races are, but we need people to appreciate um, the distances involved and the times involved, and are these all self-supported? Yeah, so they're all self-supported or um, unsupported. Um, so you pretty much uh, everyone ha is on an even playing field, which I quite like. Um, it's not an arms race or uh, whoever's got the most amount of money or sponsorship has the best chance of survival. It's everyone's on an even playing field, really. Um you can only access what's freely available to everyone else. Mm, um, okay. The Indian Pacific wheel race is essentially exactly uh, what it says on the tin. It uh, starts on one side of Australia in Western Australia, which is on the Indian, Indian Ocean um, in a place called Fremantle, just south of Perth. And you traverse across Australia through Western Australia, across the uh, the Nullarbor, which is, it seems to fill a lot of riders with dread because it is a remote kind of location. Um, it's a desert um, and it can get very, very hot. And um, there's only one main arterial road that crosses pretty much from Western Australia into South Australia. And that stretch of desert is around, it's over a thousand kilometres. Mm. Um, with with some sections of um, you know maybe 200 k's um, so 120 miles of um, nothing no food or water and you kind of have to carry enough to to survive wow um, yeah so it's five and a half thousand kilometers you go through pretty much um, across Australia um, the long way around so you go through most of the major cities in Australia through um, through Adelaide, through Melbourne, up over um, the, the snowy mountains, through Canberra, which is the, the sort of Australian capital territory, um, and then into Sydney. So you've got some very different sections. Um, you know, you've kind of got like a long, flat desert section. Then you've, you traverse into South Australia, beautiful wine country, um, it's, it's known for holding the the world tour, um, the first on the calendar, which is the Tour Down Under. So you're kind of in the Adelaide Hills, um, and then you traverse through the Great Ocean Road, which is a, a a beautiful section where a lot of tourists kind of all flock to. Um, so you follow the coastal 
route, which isn't the the quickest way to go across Australia, but it is arguably the the most picturesque into um, into Victoria, and then through Melbourne, and then you really start with all of the climbing. Um, and a lot of internationals probably don't realise that there are some pretty big mountains in um, in Australia. You can get snow, um, and we have seen snow come in even in summer into some of these areas, and it does get pretty cold, um, which caught and has caught out a few few riders in the past because they're all bringing their flip flops and their you know their sort of um, shorts and t-shirts with them and um, they're like, what do you mean it gets cold? It's Australia, man, and it's summer. <laughs> but you're going through the desert, and then next minute you're going into the like the alpine region and um, the snowy mountains, and uh, yeah, it it does get um, challenging for for the last bit of the ride. You're you're climbing and doing all all the climbing pretty much in the last section of the race. Um, yeah, the so that's the first crown, I guess. Um, it's probably the most remote of all three of them. Um, then you get because I guess Australia is is like the size of is size of the US in terms of mass, but the population of Greater Los Angeles, so like twenty million people, so it's hardly inhabited, especially wow. in the in the, in the centre. Um, so you don't often see a lot of people or um, have a lot of services like you would in the trans um, trans American bike race, which is a much longer race um, and a bit more climbing. Um, it's six thousand eight hundred kilometers and quite a bit of vert. I think it was something like sixty thousand meters or f- close to sixty thousand meters of vertical. I don't really. I think it's about one hundred eighty thousand what feet. Something like that, or seventy. And um, yeah, so the the Indian Pacific was about seventeen days, seventeen and a half. The Trans America took me (laughs) much, much longer, um, unfortunately. But is uh, yeah, six thousand eight hundred k's, and you traverse through pretty much the central Midwest um, from. West Coast USA, which is essentially a start in um, in Oregon, in Portland, right on the west coast, and you travel through down through Oregon into Idaho, Montana, um, get a bit of climbing um, through Wyoming, um, Colorado, Kansas, Missouri, um, Kentucky, and then into Virginia, where the finish is in. Um, in Yorktown, so a very historical kind of finish. Um, yeah, so that's that's number two, and then number three is slightly different than the first two, which is a prescribed kind of route that everyone follows. The third one is the transcontinental in Europe. It always has, from the last couple of years, the same start and end, um, which is a small little um, place in Belgium. Um, quite iconic Um, it's it finishes in a place called Meteora in Greece um, which is quite interesting in itself it's um, Meteora kind of translates into suspended in the sky Mm. or for the faithful in the heavens above Um, and it's kind of a a site of um, six monastery complexes which have survived so I think since the 14th century, um, wow. built by um, Eastern Orthodox monks. So yeah, it's quite a quite a place to to finish, um, and I'll be very happy when I reach the finish uh, of the third the third crown. But very different in that you have these control points, um, and each year they're different. This year you're going through, um, it looks like, four checkpoints. Uh, the first one's in Austria, um, which is the Bilohoa Pass. Then you're into Slovenia, um, uh, which is a small place called Mangart, and they're all these big summit checkpoints, and then into Poland and then into Bosnia. 
And then um, you get your little brevet card kind of ticked off and stamped through all these four control points and race down onto Meteora and you kind of decide how you'd like to get to all of these checkpoints. So there isn't a, a prescribed route except for following those checkpoints and control points, um, which makes it a bit more challenging because um, I guess following a GPX file and just trying to figure out where you, you sleep and and um, find food and water um, is challenging enough. But then adding on the navigation side and leaving that up to you is um, is interesting and and challenging in itself. But therein is part of the adventure, I guess. Wow, that it sounds remarkable. I kind of like the idea of of getting to alter the route as long as you make all the checkpoints. You know. Yeah. I think that that's kind of fun. It really adds uh, an element of uh, maybe an element of surprise. I mean, people might choose the shortest route and find out it's not the fastest route. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's right. And famously, um, one one of our ambassadors, who's probably one of the arguably the best ultra distance riders in the world, Christoph Allegard. Um, he's won the transcontinental, I think, three times more than anyone else has um and he famously was watching the weather and took a 200 kilometer detour to miss um miss some really bad weather and hook onto a really strong tailwind and people were thinking he's lost the plot he's gone absolutely mad why (laughs) is he doing this detour and he caught this ripper of a tailwind and ended up winning the race whilst everyone suffered trying to take the shortcut over the mountains. So, yeah, it can make for some really exciting, um, exciting racing. But it is, yeah, it's it's also quite fun because anything can happen and you're following all these dots all over Europe wondering what route they're taking and what's their strategy and when are they going to sleep and when are they going to take on the mountain and, they don't want to sleep up at altitude because it's really high and it's really cold, even though it's still summer. So, you know, will some people take unsealed roads? Will they take sealed roads? What kind of equipment do they have in their arsenal to survive? There's all these things going on. Um, so that's quite interesting in itself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's kind I... of like Hunger Game on wheels. <laughs> well, just so people uh, get a feel for what we're talking about here, you know, these, these races are many thousands of miles. We're not talking about a 500-mile race or even a 1,000-mile race. We're talking about um, the the Indian Pacific being over 3,000 miles, right? The Trans-American yeah. over 4,000 miles, 6,800 kilometers. I mean, these are yeah. massive distances, and you're doing this self-supported. and. Yeah. You do it. I notice the strategy here is that a lot of people will will choose nights not to sleep at all, or choose just mm. how much sleep they need to try to be functional on the bike so that they can continue on and, and finish. Um, the whole strategy behind keeping your body fueled and rested and protected from the elements—it's it, got to be really a challenge. Yeah, it is. Like for me, I can't ride. Um, for say like 36 hours nonstop or do massive days in the saddle comparative to some of the other riders. Um, but I just try and move faster when I am riding. Um, Sarah, one of our, one, one of the curve members and probably one of the, the, the top say 10 in the world, she, she has an ability to survive on much less sleep than most men. And, she she famously won race to the rock um a race so hard they put in the headlines that no man could finish because she was the only finisher and all <laughs> wow. the guys that were racing her um pulled out um and she she kind of blurred the lines between male and female in terms of categorization and that's also another thing i love about ultra distance cycling is you know it's not men and women it's just riders 
Right. And it kind of removes all of that requirement for watts per kilo and, you know, VO2 max, because that really has no relevance to ultra distance cycling. It's kind of what's between the ears and um, what's in the heart that kind of gets you through these. Um, but yeah, you're right. A lot of riders will spend a lot of time that you get 24 hours in a day and it's how efficiently you use that. It's the marriage of total time and ride time and how much you're willing to sacrifice to put those two together. Hmm. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, I want to dive into some of the the details, geek out a little bit about the Transamerica race, but before we do, I'd like to rewind and say, why? <laughs> how did you get into biking? And then how did you get into yeah. these ultra cycling events? I mean, wow, it's it's got to be a horribly punishing habit. Um, well, why? I, I've always enjoyed sports enjoyed sport um growing up in south africa it's kind of expected that you are a sportsman and an academic and high achieving at both and if you're not you're kind of excluded from society um <laughs> sounds harsh but um, <laughs> I was gonna say. that's just the way it is <laughs> but um yeah it's like you're living in an episode of 300 but um it's it's always been a part of my life i love i kind of have been a lifetime athlete and being involved in, you know, lifesaving and swimming and um, surfing, um, every kind of team sport and individual sport, you kind of just grow up playing them all and finding out what works for you. Um, and got involved in, in triathlon and loved, loved the sport because I used to swim competitively and I used to run competitively. Um, but didn't know much about cycling as a teenager till I met my uncle. Um, he, he'd emigrated from South Africa and was living in London and he just had this man cave that was full of like all these really interesting bikes, really, um, very old, old school kind of, he's a campy Campagnolo fan and had all these interesting kind of, um, group sets I'd never heard of. And um, he kind of got me involved in in cycling when I was when I moved to to the UK. Started getting involved in triathlon a bit more and and raced to a high high level. Um, yeah, and when I moved to Australia, cycling was just on another level, um, and sport was on another level. And it was kind of like South Africa, very outdoor outdoor lifestyle, just no issues, no crime or political issues no racial issues so i was like oh i kind of feel like i'm at home and really kind of found my way into the cycling community and met all of the guys from from curve and i was in aviation i was running an aviation brokerage and just found myself in a in a wonderful community of of cyclists of all descriptions like i was racing track I was getting involved in cyclocross. There was um, crits. You could race a crit um, and win money like every every other night in summer. The days were super long. You know, it's just so much fun being out on the bike, just having fun. It's like you're a kid again pretty mm. much. So it was like a, a form of escapism because everyone's got these really stressful jobs and then – before and after everyone's just having fun on their bikes and melbourne's really really great in that regard so yeah just got more and more involved in in the cycling community and then uh, a couple of years ago the guys were were really struggling to get the brand out there um and that's kind of what i specialize in i love i love meeting people talking to people um sharing adventures um and said look i'd love to help i mean i'm writing the products anyway i love the product i believe in it it's really easy to to tell people about something you believe in so i said well you know i'm traveling around quite a lot i'm happy to you know use some of that time when i'm not working to to talk about curve and that's kind of how things started and just said hey look this is a weakness in the business or we we should be doing this and 
slowly just built a position up for myself and resigned, invested in, in the business and, um, yeah, became the fourth member of, of Curve. And then that's when all this ultra-distance stuff started because we were building bikes um, to pursue a, a, a very specific goal for one of our founders, Jesse Carlson, um, and he was taking on the, the transcontinental at that time. And so we were trying to build the lightest ultra-distance bike that could go the distance, um, and we did. And Jesse, the great athlete that he is, actually won the Trans-American Bike Race by two days. Um, and he went through tornadoes in Kansas and some s- serious back issues on the first day, um, extreme heat, and, yeah, managed to to do us all proud. So it was, in, it was incredible watching that. And I was going, man, what are these guys? Like, I don't really know much about ultra distance, but I don't understand how someone can ride 400 Ks a day average and do that sustained kind of effort for, for weeks at a time. And then Sarah decided she wanted to give the uh, Trans-American Bike Race a go as well. And, you know, it's one of the longest and arguably one of the hardest. And she was leading the race for so long. We were thinking, my goodness, her first ever ultra, she's going to win. Um, and unfortunately, through fatigue and not really understanding her Garmin e-trex, um, this was her first race and she never never really even navigated before she was going 150 kilometers off course and ended up ended up in fourth or fifth because um she went the wrong way but i was kind of i'm friends with all of these nut jobs as people probably think this is crazy (laughs) and i was just inspired like you know cycling in australia is is not kind of met with the same um kind of um, open arms in in the US you get a lot of space by drivers most people are very courteous um, and and regard you as a road user in in Australia it's not the case so getting out of that that, that environment and kind of going on these adventures and these these kind of off the beaten track um, sort of trips became longer and longer for us all. And we were kind of exposed through Jesse and Sarah to ultra distance riding. So I guess, yeah, I I started riding longer and longer, and I rode from Sydney to Melbourne, which isn't you know massive distance, but it was about 800 k's. Just trying to figure out what this was all about, and had a great adventure just with a buddy of mine um, a couple of years ago. We it was. Um, it was kind of Christmas time and I always go and spend it with my uncle who now lives in Sydney. Um, and we go and ride and have fun. And then we just said, Hey, it's new year's. Why don't we, why don't we just go and ride to Melbourne? Just take a credit card, no real kind of idea on where we're going to go and where we're going to stay each night, but we'll figure it out on the day. We packed a little backpack each and off we went not knowing that backpacks are not a great idea and you should probably just have like a saddlebag. Right. We were just like, off we go. And that kind of started it all off. And we now hold these kind of annual things for the Tour Down Under where we'll do a pilgrimage of 800 Ks in two days and invite people to come and see what it's like to ride longer distances and and show them what it's all about. And then it really kicks off the the Tour Down Under and we have – pretty much all the world tour riders and world tour teams all in Adelaide. They're really accessible. You've got all this beautiful riding, the race itself, everyone from around Australia and around the world's come to watch the race. There's loads of cyclists and it's just a lot of fun. Um, And we kind of go and showcase our bikes and tell everyone about the adventures and how great cycling is in Australia. So I guess that's kind of how it all all came about in a very long-winded explanation for you, Curtis. Well, I appreciate the full history. That's awesome. I think it's an amazing thing that you're you're doing these these sorts of distances and the community that is around that sounds it sounds like a really unique approach to living life and experiencing life. I have to ask, man, um, when you're on a bike for that long, yeah, I 
I, I think about back aches. I think about wrists and hands that that yeah. numb out and get sore. And I, you know, I think about just the the fatigue on the whole body, but also the legs. You know, I mean, how do you get past that to do these sorts of distances? Yeah, I think I think the body is an incredible thing, um, and most of the time it listens to your mental state as to whether it figures out if it's in a good physical state. Um, I think you're right. You can kind of try and mitigate all of those issues, um, you know, hands, um, back, hot foot. Um, I, I've trapped some nerves in my hands. I haven't been able to use my hands for a few few months. Um, you, you can't feel your fingers unfortunately because um that you kind of pinch nerves and get kind of like a tennis elbow issue um some people's feet swell and like their toenails fall off mm. you can kind of as you get more experienced those things don't happen so frequently and you understand that you're able to to push through and you can actually carry on um mm. i guess the mind is probably the the hardest one to to kind of educate on what's possible and what isn't because initially like yourself you're saying well how can you ride for 240 miles and then you do that again and again and again and again and again and you're spending maybe 20 hours on the bike and four hours sleep or or maybe riding through the night but yeah the human body is uh it, it is an incredible incredible thing um and you'll be surprised with what it can actually do um, if you set your mind to it. And so it's it's really exploring not only a, a place that you've never been to before on the map, but it's also exploring yourself, um, those dark areas that you perhaps haven't tested or have found out, um, which is quite interesting um, to, to someone like myself. I'm, I'm quite interested to know what is possible and what isn't. Um, so I guess that's that answers the why. Well, whether it's a possibility or just flat remarkable, <laughs> it's amazing to me that, you know, the human body can do these things. I've talked to other ultra-distance athletes, and they have stories about hallucinations and other just wild things that can happen when you push your body for extended periods of time. Have you had those experiences too? Um, I, I have, and... You you kind of got to be careful with um, because you're a road user and because you're on the road and there are other people on the road. You've kind of got to respect that you're probably the most vulnerable of all. Um, so you kind of I get to a point where I put myself into a state where I need to be in control all of the time because the risks involved with not being in control can be severe so i have experienced hallucinations and sleep deprivation to the point where um, you're falling asleep on the bike and you're having these micro sleeps Um, and then you've kind of got to look at yourself and say um, am i now putting myself and others at risk and that's usually the time that i will I'll, i'll pull up stumps sometimes you can get through it and you can push through it most of the time, um, if I can't, I'll, I'll have a have a sleep. But yeah, I've I've had some in- interesting situations where I'm crossing the desert and I'm just sort of looking at the road and my dynamo is powering my front light and you're seeing all these different shadows in the tarmac and all I can see is all these little kittens' heads, like cats' heads, and you're like, what are all these kittens doing <laughs> on the road? And then you're like, it's not real, and then you'll see these shapes in the distance, in the darkness, because there's nothing around but you and the Milky Way, which is beautiful. And you're just like, wow, look at all these stars. And you're just like, gosh, this is just amazing. And then you're like, oh, I'm so tired. And I was like, oh, I wish there was like some food somewhere. Wouldn't it be nice to sleep for a moment? And then you see a person and you're like, oh, that's really scary. And then you're like, but that isn't a person. It's just an oddly shaped sign when you get closer to it. And all these things are always playing tricks in your mind. And I know Jesse kind of sees some really interesting things. Maybe he's got a much better imagination than I do. But most of the time, um, my 
issues have been with um, my my chamois <laughs> and saddle source, um, mm. which seem to be my biggest problem. Um, famously, having just finished the Transamerica, I underwent some hospital time and had a um, surgeon cut me open and remove a cyst and pack me full of gauze um, and said, there's no way you can finish this race. You have to take six weeks off the bike. You've got a four-centimeter um, incision in your, um, how do you say, ball bag, um, <laughs> and you will find it incredibly uncomfortable and you won't be able to race at the level you want to, so you can't finish the, the Trans-American bike race. And I said, look, I appreciate you know what you're talking about, but you might not know what the human body's capable of. Um, you're a medical doctor. I have a girlfriend. She's a doctor. You're probably erring on the side of caution, and that's fine. But I can just stand up and not sit down for the last 600 Ks, and I'll finish. Oh. I've done 6,000 Ks. <laughs> I'm not letting 600 Ks and assist get in the way of me finishing because what that does is it impacts – not only this race, but the Triple Crown. Right. So I I, I carried on, I took, took a few days off um, and figured out how I was going to um, look after myself because uh, a lot of people were saying there's no way that you can, you can pack this each day and remove it. It'll be extremely painful and um, you need to keep it very clean and it's just not possible. Uh, turns out it is possible, and your body just adapts to riding standing up if you teach it to do that. Um, and a friend of mine who's cycling, his name's Ali Denham, and he has this blog called Cycling About, and he's cycling from the southern tip of South America all the way to Alaska. And he said, do you know what? I read this guy. He, w he wasn't a cyclist, but he wanted to ride around the world. Um, but he wasn't comfortable with sitting down. He found it really strange. So he, he just rode standing up, and he actually rode around the world standing up. And I don't know if he was lying because I never researched it further or if he was just trying to give me encouragement to finish. But I did find that your body just adapts, and I, I just ended up standing up. The first day I couldn't really go very far. I think I, I, think I limped sort of 60Ks, and I was like, that's it. That's all the body can take. But I didn't also realize the painkillers that were uh, given to me were so opiate-based that they just knock you for six. So I, unfortunately, even though they're wonderful and they just send you off into sleep, they're not actually really great for riding. So I stopped taking those um, and then rode the next day standing up and, and managed to do about 180 Ks and then managed to do another 200 and then before you know it, we were at the finish. So, yeah, my experiences with going long have been, unfortunately, I just haven't found the best saddle and chamois that can go the distance. And maybe it's maybe it's me. I've got really wide sit bones, big birthing hips. Maybe it's my <laughs> saddle. You know, I'm just – I'm still learning. I guess that's another great thing about this um, style of riding is you're still learning. You're always learning. The community is so open to, to talking about their experiences and there's so much information that's freely available. So many great riders are very accessible um, and you can learn a lot if if you're willing to ask for help. So, wow, um, that's fascinating. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at the chart from the trackleaders.com that came out of the Trans-America race, and I, I'm looking at yes. your speed versus time plot. And yes. what's fun about that is, it, you know, you, the speed's not necessarily as exciting to me as watching how long you were moving between stops, right? And I can see yeah. your top speeds of, you know, 30-something miles per hour and, and that sort of thing, and your average speeds that look like they're around 15 and uh, going huge distances. But what's fun about this is I'm looking here at, at like timestamp 230 and you're riding and then it doesn't stop for another significant rest until like 280. So 
I'm thinking, well, there's 50 hours of writing right there. That was like a two-day straight stint that you did. Yeah, I mean, well, there was there were some sections where, you know, weather uh, is um, is good. The I, There were parts in Kansas that were kind of either trying to get away from some really nasty weather systems um, or it just it made sense to ride through the night because of the heat. So you kind of take advantage of those situations. Mm. And I wanted to ask this especially, uh, lots of climbing in the Trans-American Bike Race, Wyoming, Montana, yeah. Colorado, uh, not to mention the Cascades out west. And uh, when you got to Kansas, now you're in the long rolling hills with potential for crazy wind. Did you have mm. a, a favorable wind or was it against you? It unfortunately was a, a, a southeasterly, which is a cross headwind. Oh. Um, yeah. So which is which worse of, then? The, the climbing yeah. in the mountains or the wind? For me, like I've, I've done the Indian Pacific wheel race twice now. Um, and every year for the first 2,000 Ks, it's usually a headwind. And so you kind of just get accustomed to being just hit in the face, sitting on what you imagine to be a really long climb because riding on the flat into a 35k an hour cross headwind is pretty much like climbing. Right. And it's, it's just being comfortable with the fact that you're going really slow and understanding that you're going slow, but so is everyone else that's in the near vicinity. And yeah, Kansas was difficult because it's really flat and it's always got some really difficult weather to deal with, whether it's kind of like tornadoes, um, lightning, really, really like I had some lightning storms that I thought there's no shelter. I can't really do anything about it. And I'm concerned that I'm going to get struck by lightning at the moment, trying to kind of evade the, 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 those systems and and seek some shelter but there is nothing so you've just got to keep riding so you just keep going just keep going because you know there's nothing really else you can do wow um which is unnerving um but beautiful as well because i mean the sky is lighting up every other second you know there's sort of sheet lightning rattling through the heavens um and you're kind of just switching off every electrical device you have, just hoping that that might make a difference. <laughs> and you're wishing that your rubber tires were about 10 feet thick, right? Yeah, that's right. Going, I'm sure these rubber tires will be insufficient for me not to <laughs> get into any trouble. Wow. Yeah. Well, I see on your time chart here that the... The Ford Momentum, the Ford Progress, stopped off a little before 500 hours, and uh, that must be the gap when you were in the hospital. Yeah, that would have been um, where I had the embarrassing situation of explaining what exactly I got up to and and why I needed some help. By now you certainly know who Bentgate is. That's for a great reason. Bentgate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. 
I don't think there are a lot of people who have the the guts, the the, the sheer grit to press on in those sorts of situations to stand up and pedal for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers, you know, but you did it, you finished the race and wow, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, my mate, Jesse says, um, death before DNF. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently that's my style of riding. So yeah, I haven't, I haven't completed a race that I've started. I haven't not completed a race I've started, shall I say? So, yeah. Well, I, I'm going to relate my one bike race that I was in. <laughs> I bought a new bike, never even did a shakedown ride, went out and took off on my very first race. And the bike okay. fell apart. Whoever put it together <laughs> didn't tighten everything down. The stuff was falling off all over the place. And I kept falling farther and farther behind. And finally, I caught up with a friend of mine. And he was just at his end. He had gone as hard as he could go. And he looked over at me and says, I'm done. I'm going to jump on the sag wagon. And I thought, oh, well, I don't have a crack at winning this thing. I might as well get on the sag wagon with him. And then the results came out and I saw that DNF. I didn't even know that was a thing. And I have to tell you, you know, Ryan, I was like, oh, why did I stop? It was only because I didn't see a reason to keep going. I had no idea that there would be a DNF category and uh, I'm kind of like you. I, I don't know about death before DNF, but I'll tell you what, <laughs> I don't ever want to see a DNF again. It was just, I know. it was crazy. It's horrible, isn't it? Yeah. Because, I mean, give it a few more Ks, give it a couple of hours, it'll always get better. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, your friend would have, your, fr- your friend would have been probably bonking. He's probably got no glycogen left. He's gone really hard. He's out of food. Mentally, he's kind of defeated. He's been dropped off the back. He's got no one to ride with. That's when the race starts. Mm. Well, if it were repeatable and it's not, I think instead I would just come alongside him and say, let's go. We'll, we'll on, finish man. together. <laughs> and then let's go, yeah. That would have been the right response for certain. Wow. Well, it's amazing that you pressed on through and made that happen. I was reading through the Facebook posts where people are giving you support and and uh, yeah. accolades and and you know you kind of get just a little bit of the story right and yeah. uh, there's so much more to that but here's the last one that posted here was from jennifer who said sweet victory is within sight ryan and uh, i i just think man what did that feel like when you finally completed when you rolled up and you knew that you had done it no dnf yeah, it's bittersweet. I still remember it because there wasn't the same satisfaction that I got from seeing the Sydney Opera House and, you know, doing a really good time and knowing that I kind of left it all out there. Um, it was different because I felt a bit more rested. I'd spent a lot of time resting from being cut open. Um, I'd had about four days off the bike. So, my legs felt good. I wasn't as fatigued as the other riders that were finishing around me. Actually, I looked like I hadn't even I hadn't even done the Trans America. Mm. You know, I'd had a shave. I'd uh, I washed my clothes. I'd been <laughs> sleeping in a bed. You know, I hadn't been sleeping in a ditch for so long. My body was wasn't as beat up as probably how it should be, and that's probably why we tried. A friend of mine who um, was also racing. I managed to catch them both. He's also a South African guy that lives in England. And we just said, look, it's the last big stretch. It's about 275Ks, and I really want to do it in about 10 hours. And just leave it all out there. And we did. We pretty much tried to kill each other, um, that, that last sort of 270. And we raced as hard as we could. And when we finally got there, you know, he he'd been on the road for a long time and he was, he was spent and I was tired, but I, yeah, it was, it was bittersweet because it was like, I've done it. I've done this ridiculous ride across the country, but I don't feel like I raced it. How I set about giving it a red hot go when I, when I sort of launched from the start line. Um, Cause I was, you know, I was kind of in top in the top 10. I was, I'd had a few issues with my knees and a, a 
fallen back into like 30th place and then raced as hard as I could to work my way through the field and was back in, I think, ninth at that stage. And then this happened and I was just like, damn, you know, like, is there such a thing as a perfect race? I'm yet to find out if, if it, if that pursuit for a perfect race is, is, is a stupid idea. Um, and I was, I was disappointed with what had happened, but I was also proud of, of finishing and not giving up when things became quite difficult. So it was, yeah, it was a strange mix of emotion and you kind of take a long time to digest that all because you've been out in the wild for, you know, two, three weeks. You're, you're always on your own. You don't have a lot of communication with the outside world. Now and again, you traverse through it, but you don't really interact with it other than to stop, get some food, maybe say, hi, can I get a coffee and this and a thousand ice creams? <laughs> and a kilo bag of Doritos and then you're back on the road again and that's kind of your human interaction and so you spend a lot of time inside this strange little bubble and a lot of time with yourself so it takes a while to kind of put all those thoughts into into place and I don't think I have done quite that yet but I do remember finishing and going I'm a little disappointed I was very very happy to to finish um just not as as happy with not being able to race it the way i wanted to i think that there's plenty of celebration to be had for finishing against all odds and i think it's fantastic you know it's interesting i won't go on about it but freakonomics did a show on incrementalism in which they were interviewing the uh, the coach for the uk cycling team and he was talking about all the tiny little things that they would do to try to mm. get them all to add up to most excellent cycling. And they even went so far as hauling mattresses from hotel to hotel so the riders could sleep on the same mattress every night. <laughs> yeah, that, this, that sounds like um, Dave, David Brailsford, <laughs> the pursuit of marginal gains. Well, and this is kind of just the opposite, isn't it? When you're self-supported and taking it as it comes. Yeah, I mean, it is and it isn't. Like, you have to be very, like, there is a huge amount of planning and preparation because all of those marginal gains do add up as you, you know, the body can get beaten up and it, it can recover for sure, but you've got to protect it and look after it in the best way that you can each day. Like you've got to, if you're feeling really good, great, but don't go hard because you're going to feel really, really bad later, keeping mm. that little bit of reserve in. Like when you do go to sleep, how do you sleep? Do you sleep with your legs elevated to encourage more recovery, to flush more lactic acid out of the system and encourage new blood flow into your legs? How do you, how do you sleep? When do you sleep? What kind of nutrition do you put into your body each day? Um, how far are you going to ride and how often are you going to sleep? And what do those sleep cycles look like? And do you enter into a, a deep sleep or a REM sleep or um, a, a sleep that's going to leave you groggy and, uh, and wanting more? So you're right, you're taking it as it comes, but you're also looking at 6,800 Ks very closely and going, that's where I'm going to pick up food and water. And this is where I'm going to sleep. And I'm going to sleep inside here because we're going through bear country and we're at altitude. And if I sleep outside and I get it wrong and I get too cold, it's going to hurt me in coming days. And I'll be so fatigued that I won't be able to operate at a level that I need to to be able to win or to cover 200 miles. So there, there are marginal gains in, in the way that you, you ride these sorts of races or race these sorts of races. And to be very good at them, it's understanding all of those and putting them in place to have that supposed perfect race. Um, and as you get more experienced, you learn about yourself and what works for you, but also how to... To, to marry all of these 
different disciplines like surviving and and, and sleeping outside and and planning route planning um, what you can do without in the wild and on your bike and what you can't how you set up your bike to be the most efficient but also the most comfortable how you protect your hands and your body and your lips and your skin all those things are are always being played in your mind when when it's extremely wet or extremely cold um how you adapt you know is there a serious headwind is it 40 degrees and you have to switch your sleep cycles up and you're riding through the night and you're sleeping through the heat of the day um all of those things are are constantly playing out in your in your mind and that's where all the tactics and the the interesting side of the sport exists that you probably don't always see it's the experience that probably keeps you coming back like you were saying the pursuit of the perfect race you know that uh that's 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 right. the target that's the goal that's amazing um the speed plot there's a point on your plot here where you are at about 2700 miles so well along and you yeah. peak out over 30 miles per hour and you stay there for miles and miles and miles that must have been one amazing downhill do you know where that was oh 2800 miles gosh no, no, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just looking at this. I thought, well, maybe he's coming down out of the Appalachians or something, you know, because uh, it, it had to be an amazing, or uh, a 50-mile-per-hour tailwind would have done it for you, too. Yeah, 2,800 miles. I can have a look and see where that would put me. Um, <laughs> let me see if I can figure that out. That's just kind of the fun of it, to look at that. Yeah, so 2,800 miles, you're going through Missouri at that stage. Um, you're kind of midway through Missouri, it looks like. Just actually pulled up the um, – there's actually – I'm looking at the uh, Trans Am bike race, and there's still guys out there. Wow. Yeah. So I think it was 115 people that started. Um, I think about 50 riders pulled out. There's seven active people still riding, of which it looks like two are still riding through Missouri. Good on them. So they're still they're still going. That's fantastic. Yeah, it looks like 2,800 miles would put you in the Mark Twain National Forest, <laughs> hmm. and sort of just past Springfield. Um, kind of going into eminence it seems wow so i was doing yeah wow 30 miles an hour for a long time <laughs> yeah that's you kind of you're really in the um you're at the start of the the appalachians there so i have no idea how i was holding that kind of speed <laughs> to be honest <laughs> and, well maybe it was one of those hallucinations maybe uh you thought there was a lion <laughs> chasing you or something or one of those bears <laughs> oh actually yeah there there were a lot of dogs i must say a lot of dogs so <laughs> well, that's fantastic well, Ryan, we burned through our time, man. I really enjoyed hearing all about this ultra-distance cycling. It's amazing to me what you do. And I I don't care that you had to spend a few days in the hospital and recovering. I think it's amazing that you pressed on and you finished, you know, with so much trying to get you to drop out. You succeeded with no DNF. And I think it's a fantastic attempt. I, I think it's something that you should really, really celebrate and I am excited to hear how things go for you on the transcontinental race. And, oh, thanks, uh, you mate. know, we're going to be pulling for you. Love to hear that you did it, that you finished the Triple Crown. That'd be fantastic. Well, I'll keep you posted. Um, and, yeah, thanks so much for having me on, uh, on your podcast, mate. You know what? We need to get a little bit more information about Curve Cycling. How can people get more information? Uh, well, we're, we're pretty active. Um, on, on social media, we have um, we have a good presence on Instagram. We kind of um, have uh, a Facebook um, page as well, and we have a website, all pretty much the same thing, Curve Cycling. Um, so, yeah, check us out. 
um, if you're interested, and you can follow my adventures through through that as well. Wonderful. Well, right on. Well, thanks again for taking the time to share with us today. Oh, no worries, mate. Thanks, thanks for your time, and uh, thanks for the listeners. Oh, you bet, you bet. And for all the listeners out there, wow, can you believe it? Can you imagine <laughs> doing that kind of distance? Amazing, amazing stuff. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to the show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.